Section 55 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 13, Part 3. Frederick's recovery progressed, surely. The feverish outer world, too, seemed to come nearer to recovery. The word peace was always being spoken more frequently and always louder. The advance of the Prussians, who found no longer any opposition on the way, and who were quietly drawing on towards Vienna by way of Brune, the keys of which were delivered by the burgomaster to King William, this advance was more in the nature of a military promenade than an operation of war, and on July the 26th, a regular suspension of arms at Nicholsburg was ended by the preliminaries of peace. My father had a great delight in the reception of the news of Admiral Tegethoff's victory at Lysa. Italian ships blown into the air, the Affondatori destroyed. What a satisfaction! I could not with perfect honesty take my share in his joy. Speaking generally, I could not understand why, since Venice had already been surrendered, these naval actions should be fought at all. So much, however, is certain that there broke out over this event the most lively shout of joy, not from my father only, but from all the Viennese papers. The fame of a victory in war is a thing which has been swollen up to such a size through the traditions of a thousand years, that even from the mere news of one, some share of pride is spread over the whole population. If anywhere a general of your country has beaten a general of a foreign country, every single subject of the state in question is congratulated. And since each man hears that all the rest are rejoicing, a thing which in itself is exhilarating, why each man ends by rejoicing, in fact. This is what Frederick called feeling in droves. Another political event of those days was that Austria at length joined the Geneva Convention. Well, are you contented now? asked my father as he read the news. Do you agree that war, which you are always calling a barbarity, is always becoming more humane, as civilization progresses. I too am indeed in favour of carrying on war humanely. The wounded should have the most careful nursing and all possible relief, even on strategic principles, which in the long run are surely the most important in warlike matters. By a proper treatment of the sick, very many may become fit for service again and be replaced in the ranks in a shorter space of time. You are right, Papa. Material to be used again, that is the chief thing. But after the things which I have seen, no Red Cross will be enough, even if they had ten times as much of men and means, to conjure away the misery which one battle brings with it. No, indeed, not to conjure it away, but to mitigate it. What cannot be prevented, one must always seek to mitigate. Experience teaches that no sufficient mitigation is possible. I should therefore wish the maxim to be inverted. 
what cannot be mitigated ought to be prevented. It began to be a fixed idea with me that war must cease, and every individual must contribute all that he is able to bring mankind nearer to this end. Were it but by the thousandth part of a line, I could not get away from the scenes which I had witnessed in Bohemia, especially at night, when I woke out of a sound sleep. I would feel that sore pain at my heart, and felt at the same time in my conscience the admonition, just as if someone was giving me the command, Stop it, prevent it, do not suffer it. It was not till I was wide awake and thought on what I was that the perception of my impotence came over me. What then was I to stop or to prevent? A man might as well order me, in face of the sea swelling with winds and waves, not to suffer it, dry it up. And my next thought was especially as I listened to his breathing, one of deep happiness. I have Frederick again, and I would plunge into this idea as vividly as I could. And then I would put my arm round him as he lay beside me, even at the risk of wakening him, and kiss his lips. My son Rudolph had really reason to be jealous of his stepfather, and this feeling was actually aroused in the boy's heart, especially since recent days. That I had gone away from Grummet's without bidding him goodbye, that after my return my first wish was not to embrace him, that as a general rule I did not move from my husband's side for almost the whole day. All this put together caused the poor little fellow, one fine morning, to throw himself weeping on my neck and sob out. Mamma, mamma, you do not love me a bit. What nonsense are you talking, child? Yes, only, only papa, I, I will not grow up at all if you no longer like me. No longer like you? You, my treasure? I kissed and caressed the weeping child. You, my only son, my pride, the joy of my future. I love you so, so above. No, not above everything, but infinitely. After this little scene, my love for my boy came more vividly into my feelings. In the days just past, I had in fact been so much engrossed by my fears for Frederick that poor Rudolph had got thrust a little into the background. The plans which Frederick and I had made up between ourselves for the future were as follows. After the war was over, to quit the military service and retire to some small cheap place where Frederick's pension as colonel and what I could contribute would suffice to keep up our little household. We rejoiced over this solitary, independent life together, as if we had been a pair of young lovers. By means of the events of our recent experience, we had been taught thoroughly that we each formed the whole world to the other. Little Rudolph, moreover, was not excluded from this fellowship. His education was a main business in filling up the existence we were planning. We were not to pass our days therein in idleness and without any aim. Amongst other things, we had marked out a whole list of studies which we were to pursue in common. In a special, there was among the sciences a branch of the science of law, international, to which Frederick intended to devote himself particularly. His aim was, 
quite apart from all utopian and sentimental theory, to investigate the practical side of national peace. By means of the perusal of Buckle, to which I had given him the impulse, by means of an acquaintance with the newest acquisitions in natural philosophy, which had been revealed to him in the works of Darwin, Buckner and others. The conviction had come before him that the world was arriving at a new phase of knowledge, and to make this knowledge his own as far as possible, appeared to him sufficient to fill up life along with domestic pleasures. My father, who meanwhile knew nothing of our views, was making quite other plans for the future on our behalf. You will now, Tilling, be colonel at an early age, and in ten years you will certainly be general. A fresh war will no doubt break out again about that time, and you may get the command of an entire corps d'armée, or who knows but what that you may reach the rank of commander-in-chief, and perhaps the great happiness may come to you of restoring the arms of Austria to their full glory, which is now for the moment obscured. When we have once adopted the needle-gun, or perhaps some still more effectual system, we shall soon have the best in a war with these gentlemen of Prussia. Who knows, I suggested, perhaps our enmity with Prussia will cease. Perhaps we shall some day conclude an alliance with them. My father shrugged his shoulders. If women would only abstain from talking politics, he said disdainfully. After what has taken place, we have to chastise these insolent fellows. We have to get the annexed as they call them, I call them plundered, states back to their severed allegiance. That is what our honour demands, and the interest of our position amongst the powers of Europe. Friendship, alliance with these transgressors? Never, unless they came and begged humbly for it. In that case, remarked Frederick, we should perhaps set our feet on their necks. Alliances are sought and concluded, only with those whom one respects, or who can offer one protection against a common foe. In statecraft, the ruling principle is egotism. Oh yes, my father replied, if the ego means one's country, everything else is certainly to be subordinated to it. And everything is certainly allowable and commanded, which seems serviceable to its interests. It is, however, to be wished, answered Frederick, that in the behaviour of communities, the same elevated civilization should be reached, as has banished from the behaviour of individuals the rough self-worship, resting on fist law, and that the view should prevail more and more that one's own interests are really most effectually furthered by avoiding damage to those of foreigners, or rather in union with the latter. But Frederick could not, of course, repeat this long sentence and illustrate it, and so the discussion ended. I shall be at Grummet's tomorrow at one o'clock, Conrad. Everyone can imagine the delight which this telegram caused Lily. No other arrival is hailed with such joy and rapture as that of one returning from the wars. It is true that in this case there was not also what is the favourite subject of the common ballads and engravings, viz., the conqueror's return, but the human feelings of the loving sweetheart would not be interfered with by patriotic considerations, 
and if Conrad had taken the city of Berlin, I believe this would not have availed to heighten the warmth of Lily's reception of him. To him, of course, it would have been better if he had come home along with troops who had been victorious, if he had contributed to conquer the province of Silesia for his emperor. Meantime, the very fact of having fought is in itself an honour for a soldier. Even if he is one of the beaten, nay, one of the fallen, the latter is even more especially glorious. Thus Otto told us that in the academy at Weiner Neustadt the names of all the students were inscribed on a table of honour to whom the advantage had befallen of having been left dead on the battlefield. To à l'ennemi, they say in France, and in that country as everywhere else it is a much prized ancestral distinction. The more progenitors one can point out in one's family who have lost their lives in battles, whether won or lost, the prouder is the descendant of that. The more value may he set on his name, the less value on his life. In order to show oneself worthy of one's slain ancestors, one must have a lively joy of one's own in slaying, active and passive. Well, so much the better is it, that as long as war exists, there should also be found people who see therein elevation and inspiration, nay, even pleasure. The number, however, of these people is daily becoming less, while the number of the soldiers becomes daily greater. Whither must this finally lead? To its becoming intolerable, and whither will this lead? Conrad did not think so deeply. His way of looking at it was excellently expressed by the well-known song of the lieutenant in the Dame Blanche. Oh, what delight is a soldier's life, what delight! To hear him speak, one might have actually envied him the expedition of which he had just formed part. My brother Otto was really filled with this envy. This warrior returned from his baptism of blood and fire who even before looked so knightly in his hussar uniform, and who was now also adorned with an honourable scar over his chin, received in the shower of bullets, who had perhaps given their quietus to so many of the foe, he seemed to him now surrounded by a nimbus of glory. It was not a successful campaign, that I must admit, said Conrad, but I have brought back from it one or two grand reminiscences. Tell us, tell us, Lily and Otto besought him. Well, I cannot give you many details. The whole thing lies behind me like a dream. The powder gets into one's head in such a strange way. The intoxication, in fact, or the fever, the martial fire, in a word, begins from the moment of marching. The parting from one's love, indeed, comes hard on one. It was the one hour in which my breast was full of tender pain. But when one is once off with one's comrades, when the thought is, now I am going on the highest duty which life can lay on a man, viz, to defend my beloved country, when, then, the musicians struck up Radetzky's march and the silken folds of the flags rustled in the wind, I must confess, Lily, that at that moment I would not have turned back. No, not into the arms of my love. Then I felt that I should never be worthy of that love, 
except by doing my duty out there by the side of my brethren. That we were marching to victory we did not doubt. What did we know about the horrible needle bullets? It was they alone that were the cause of our defeat. I tell you they fell in our ranks like hail, and we had also bad leaders. Benedek, you will see, will yet be brought before a court-martial. We should have attacked. If I should ever become a general, my tactics would be to advance. Always advance. Play a forward game. Invade the enemy's country. That surely is only another kind, and the most weighty one too of defence. If it must be so, go forward. Forward go. The way is found by never looking back. As the poet says. However, that is nothing to the point. The Emperor has not put me in command, and so I am not responsible for the tactical blunders. The generals must see how they are to settle with their military superiors and with their own consciences. We, officers and soldiers, did our duty. We had to fight, and fight we did. And that is a grand sensation in itself. The very expectation, the very excitement one feels when one rushes onto the foe, and when the word goes round, now it is afoot. This consciousness, that in that moment a portion of the world's history is being enacted, and then the pride, the joy in one's own courage, death, right and left, great and mysterious, and yet one bids him a manly defiance. Just like poor Godfrey Tessau, murmured Frederick to himself, well, of course, it is the same school. Conrad went on eagerly. One's heart beats higher, one's pulse flutters. There awakes, and that is the peculiar rapture of it. There wakes the joy of battle. The rage, the hate of the foe blazes up, and at the same time, the most burning love for one's menaced country, while the onward rush, the hewing down at them becomes a delight. One feels transported into another world, from that in which one grew up. A world in which all the ordinary feelings and ways of looking at things are changed into their opposites. Life is changed into plunder. Killing becomes a duty. Only, however, heroism, the most magnificent self-sacrifice, are left surviving. All other conceptions have perished in the tumult. Then add the powder smoke, the battle cries, I tell you, it is a state of things to which no parallel is to be found elsewhere. At the most, perhaps the same fire may glow through one in the lion or tiger hunt, when one stands in the face of the maddened wild beast and... Yes, broke in Frederick, the fight against an enemy who threatens you with death, the longing, proud desire of conquering him, fills you with peculiar enjoyment. Pray forgive me the word, Aunt Mary, as indeed everything which sustains or expands life is guaranteed to us by nature, through the reward of joy. As long as man was in peril from savage assailants, on two legs or four, and could only protect his life by killing the latter, battle became one of his delights. If in the midst of a fight the same pleasure creeps through our veins, still, though we are civilised men, it is only a reminiscence of heredity. And at the present time, 
when there are in Europe no more savages or beasts of prey, in order that this delight may not vanish from us entirely. We have invented artificial assailants for ourselves. This is what goes on. Attention. You wear blue coats, and those men there, red coats. As soon as we clap hands three times, the red coats will be turned for you into tigers, and the blue coats will become wild beasts to them. So now, one, two, three. Blow the charge, beat the attack, and now you can set off and devour each other. And after ten thousand, or always in proportion to the rise in the magnitude of armies, one hundred thousand artificial tigers have devoured each other with mutual delight in the battle at Exdorf. Then you have the battle of Exdorf, which is to become historical. And then the men who clap hands assemble round a green congress table in Ekstat, rule lines for altered frontiers on the map, haggle over the proportion of contributions, sign a paper which figures in the historical annals as the piece of Ekstat, clap their hands three times once more, and say to the redcoats and the bluecoats surviving, embrace each other, men and brethren. End of section 55